I have a gift. Uh, I'm not really sure if it's a gift or if it's a curse, but I, I inherited it from my dad. And that is that, 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 that gift is that when I'm given a Christmas present, I have historically had a very high percentage uh, ability to be able to guess what's inside of it. And, uh, and so it, it, it's more like a curse when, when people come to you and they give you a present and they are sure you're going to be surprised and then they say, guess what it is? And then you, you don't want to guess because you don't want to spoil their surprise. You know, I, I remember at times over the years, my mom uh, has pressed me to guess what a gift was. And, and I remember one time, for example, uh, uh, I was out on my own and she brought me, she bought a Christmas present for me and it was, it was a microwave and, and she thought there was no way I'm going to be able to know what it was. And so she said, guess what it is? Guess what it is? And, and I said, well, I, I guess if I had to guess it, I don't want to guess, but if I had to guess, I'd say it's a microwave and you could just see just the, the joy deflated and all the, everything was, everything was, the, was all gone. It was this disappointment. And, and so after that, I began to intentionally guess things that I, that I knew it couldn't possibly be, you know, uh, like, uh, give me a microwave. I would guess, I think it's uh, a crown. That's what it is. Yeah, it's a crown. You want to make me king. That's what it is. But, uh, uh, but you know, the, the thing about Christmas and gifts and surprises is that if you're, when you're truly surprised by a gift, that's a really wonderful experience, isn't it? When you, have you ever had someone give you something that was a total and complete shock to you and you and you just sit there and wonder and you're just amazed that that they went to this trouble for you well you know what christmas is a time of wonder and surprise and this week we're we're beginning a new series just a little three-part series called christmas surprises because the story of christmas is filled with unexpected twists and turns in fact as i was getting this ready. The truth is I have about six messages, but we only have three Sundays. So maybe next year we'll do Christmas surprises part due or something. I don't know. I know that was a horrible pronunciation for those who speak French, but, uh, but uh, I'm doing my best. But, but it's filled with unexpected twists and turns. There are characters and events that took place that you would never associate with the birth of a king. And one of those Christmas, Christmas surprises comes when you begin to look at Jesus's family tree, because uh, he had some, I don't know if you know this, he had some very questionable people in his family line. He had some rascals, shall we say, in his family tree. And when I look at Jesus's family tree, honestly, at times you, you look at him from a human perspective, I, I, I can't help but wonder what God was thinking. So today what I want to do is I want to look at the lineage of Jesus and I know that doesn't sound very exciting. Some of you are like, we're going to do what? <laughs> we're we're going to look at the lineage of Jesus. But I want to look at four women that are big surprises in the, line, in the lineage of Jesus. And, um, and most of what we're going to do, this is a very simple message today. Most, mostly what we're going to do, we're going to tell their stories. Then we're going to pull it all together at the end. So I want you to look uh, at Matthew chapter 1. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. Because that's where we're going to be reading from. That's where we're going to launch. We're going to read a lot of different scriptures today. But, uh, but uh, we're going to start here in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, and, and the first surprise in Jesus' family tree is found very early in Matthew chapter 1. 
I'm going to read beginning in verse 1. It says, This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose, and it says in parentheses, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Now, the book of Genesis provides us with a very interesting historical backdrop to help us see who Tamar was, because that's the first name I want us to see. I want us to understand how unusual it was, it is to see her name listed here in, in the line of Jesus. But in Genesis chapter 38, beginning in verse 1, it says this, About this time, Judah left home and moved to Adullam, where he stayed with a man named Hira. There he saw a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua, and he married her. When he slept with her, she became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and he named the boy Ur. <laughs> I always love some of these old Bible names, Ur. It's like, what are you going to name him? Ur. Okay. Well, okay. Well, you know, whatever. But the, then, then she became pregnant again and gave birth to another son, and she named him Onan. And when she gave birth to a third son, she named him Shelah. At the time of Shelah's birth, they were living at, at Kazib. In the course of time, Judah arranged for his firstborn son, Ur, to marry a young woman named Tamar. So there she is. First time we hear about Tamar in the Bible. Now, Judah, we need to understand, Judah was Abraham's great-grandson. He was Isaac's grandson, and he was Jacob's son. So he's very close to, to, uh, to Abraham in the, in the line there. And it was, it was actually Judah, if you remember the story of Joseph and how he was sold into slavery, it was actually Judah, who was Joseph's brother, who actually saved Joseph's life by suggesting to his brothers that they sell him into slavery instead of killing him. That's kind of one of those moments where you're like, thanks, I think, you know, I guess I'm alive, but I'm a slave now. So I don't know if this is, you know, I guess it's better, but it, but it, it was around that time when all that took place that Joseph was, when Joseph was sold into slavery, that Judah moved away from home and he married a Canaanite woman and they had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And when his firstborn son Ur was old enough, Judah arranged a marriage with a Canaanite woman, and that woman is named Tamar. Now, the Bible tells us that Judah's son Ur was evil in God's sight, and the Lord took his life. You can find that in Genesis 38, verse 7. And, 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 and God's law said that if a brother died without an heir, that the next brother would take his widow as his wife and produce an heir for his brother. So he would take his his brother's widow as his wife, and then they would have a child, and then that child would be the one who would inherit everything that his dead brother owned. So he, if he had no heir, that was what he was supposed to do. So Judah, the father of Ur and Onan, told his second son Onan to take, to take Tamar as his wife and to raise up a descendant for his deceased brother. But the problem was, Onan did not want to have a child that was not going to be his own heir. And so he prevented Tamar from getting pregnant. We don't know how, what he did and all that kind of stuff. But Onan willingly defied God's laws. And then in verse 10, just, just three or four verses later, it says, But the Lord considered it evil for Onan to, to deny a child to his dead brother. So the Lord took Onan's life too. So now think about this from Judah's perspective. Two sons down, one to go. 
And in his mind, the only common denominator is this woman named Tamar. And so, I mean, anybody notice a pattern here? One, one guy, one son marries Tamar, he dies. Second son marries Tamar, he dies. So, I mean, what do you think? I mean, are there any men here? He's like be lining up to marry Tamar at that, at that point in time. You know, like, sign me up, you know. Yeah, I got a death wish, sign me up. But uh, anyway, Judah, he decided it was not going to be in the, in the best interest of his youngest son's health to allow him to marry Tamar. So Judah told Tamar what he said was, he said, as soon as Shelah is old enough, he will be allowed to marry you. But he was lying all along. Sometime later, after the death of Judah's wife, Tamar suddenly realized that Judah had no intention of giving her to Shelah as his wife, uh, his, only, his only surviving son. And so uh, uh, she seems to have known Judah all too well because what she did in response was that she, she disguised herself as a prostitute and she stationed herself a, along the route that she knew Judah was going to be traveling to a city called Timnah. And then at, on the way, while Judah was traveling, he hired her as a prostitute and left some of his possessions as a guarantee of payment. And, and, and the, during this time, Tamar concealed her identity with a veil. And the whole time, Judah n- never knew the identity of, the, of his companion that night. Well, three months later, surprise, surprise, Judah was told that his daughter-in-law was pregnant. And Judah was absolutely indignant. He insisted that she be put to death for her immorality. See a little double standard there? But uh, it it was then, at that moment in time, that that Tamar produced Judah's seal. These are the three things he left behind. His seal, his cord, and his staff. And all three of those things were very unique to the individual. It it would be the, um, the ancient equivalent to fingerprints. If somebody had these three things... They knew who they came from. There was no question who they came from. And so when, she, when he says, let's put her to death, she's wicked and immoral. And she says, oh, well, let me show you what I got, Judah. And she pulls these things, three things up and he realizes exactly where she got pregnant. And he realizes, I was the one who hired a prostitute and made her pregnant. And so she, he confesses that, that she was more righteous than he was because she was the one who was really trying to preserve uh, the line of his own son. She was the one who was actually trying to produce an heir for his, his own son. And so as a result of that pregnancy, she, ha- she gave birth to twins. Uh, and, and, and one of those twins was a man named Perez who would be the one through whom the messianic line would be continued. No thanks to Judah. Pretty interesting, that person Tamar, isn't she? You know, I have a hard time seeing how, how someone who's going to pose as a prostitute and sleep with their father-in-law is going to be in the line of a king, much less the king of kings. Well, let's keep looking. Let's look at another woman listed in this genealogy. Matthew chapter 5, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 5. It says, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was who? Rahab. You know, Rahab is mentioned eight times in Scripture. Eight times she's mentioned. And in six of those occurrences, her name is found with a specific descriptive noun. Anybody know what that is? Harlot or prostitute. 
So 75% of the time that she's mentioned in Scripture, she's called Rahab the harlot or Rahab the prostitute. So let's look at her story uh, in Joshua chapter chapter 2. The the, the people of Israel, let's set the stage, are about to do battle with the people of the city of Jericho. And and, uh, they're about to, the Israelites are about to enter into the promised land. And so Joshua sends two men in to spy out the land, especially the city of Jericho. Let's read about it. Joshua 2 verse 1. Then Joshua secretly sent out two spies from the Israelite camp at Acacia Grove. He instructed them, scout out the land on the other side of the Jordan River, especially around Jericho. So the two men set out and came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there that night. But someone told the king of Jericho, some Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, bring out the men who have come into your house, for they have come here to spy out the whole land. Rahab had hidden the two men, but she replied, Yes, the men were here earlier, but I I didn't know where they were from. They left the town at dusk as the gates were about to close. I don't know where they went. If you hurry, you can probably catch up with them. Actually, she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them beneath bundles of flax she had laid out. So the king's men went looking for the spies along the road leading to the shallow crossings of the Jordan River. And as soon as the king's men had left, the gate of Jericho was shut. Before the spies went to sleep that night, Rahab went up on the roof to talk with them. So, so Rahab goes and she, she asks these spies to guarantee her safety and the safety of her family in exchange for pr- protecting them. Look at verse 14. We offer our own lives. This is their response. She says, listen, I will help you escape if you'll make sure I survive this and my family survives this. This is their response. We offer our own lives as a guarantee for your safety, the men agreed. If you don't betray us, we will keep our promise and be kind to you when the Lord gives us the land. Then, since Rahab's house was built into the town wall, she let them down by a rope through the window. So then the spies give her some instructions to follow in order to guarantee their safety. Verse 18, when we come into the land, you must leave the scarlet rope hanging from the window through which you let us down. And all your family members, your father, mother, brothers, and all your relatives must be here inside the house. If they go out into the street and are killed, it will not be our fault. But if anyone lays a hand on people inside this house, we will accept the responsibility for their death. If you betray us, however, we are not bound by this oath in any way. So then you skip ahead to Joshua chapter 6. And Joshua 6 Chapter 6 tells us how, how God helped the Israelites conquer the city of Jericho. And we all know the story about how they marched around the city. We're not going to get into that. That's a whole different message. But in the middle of this battle, when they're conquering the city and everything is going down, in the midst of this rousing military victory, Joshua speaks up in the middle of the battle and says this to those spies. He says, keep your promise. Go to the prostitute's house and bring her out along with her family. The men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, mother, brothers, and all the other relatives who were with her. They moved her whole family to a safe place near the camp of Israel. Then the Israelites burned the town and everything in it. Only the things made from silver, gold, bronze, and iron were kept for the treasury of the Lord's house. So Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute and her relatives who were with her in the house because she had hidden the spies Joshua sent to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. Now, I want to just say this on a side note. Why was Rahab saved? She was saved, not just, it wasn't because she saved the spies. 
Did you know that? She was saved because of her faith. Because she had come to believe that the God of Israel was indeed the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. She believed that the Israelites were going to win the battle because she believed that their God was greater. And that's why she said, I want you to spare my family. Because she had come to the realization, your God is greater, your God is stronger, your God is going to win. And since I have faith in your God, I'm asking you to spare me. And so, in fact, she is listed in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is known as the Hall of Fame. And she's listed there in verse 31. It says, it was by faith that Rahab the prostitute was not destroyed with the people in her own city who refused to obey God for she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So, so what's happened here is that for Rahab was that hiding the spies was, it was an outworking of her newfound faith uh, in the God of Israel. See, and this is what we've learned in Romans. And you, if you look at James, you'll learn this. And that is that faith requires action it's not just something you believe inside your head and Rahab's faith caused her to act on it to the point of putting her life on the line because if the king had found out that she was lying she was as good as dead she knew eventually Israel was going to attack the city she knew eventually Israel was going to win the battle. She knew eventually Israel was going to destroy the city of Jericho because she knew that their God was the true God and she wanted to be delivered and she wanted to be part of Israel. She, she didn't have much head knowledge about the God of Israel. She didn't know anything about his laws. She didn't know anything about his ways. She didn't know anything about his way of salvation. But she knew that he was the supreme God and she put her faith in him. And that's why she was saved. So, so far, we have found a woman who slept with her father-in-law and a prostitute in the line of Jesus. Top of the line, right? I mean, that's the, the cream of the crop, right? But let's look at, at the next one. Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. The second part, part of the verse 5 says, Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Ruth, beautiful story. Someday I'm either going to teach on Ruth on Wednesday night or we're going to preach through it because Ruth is so beautiful. Ruth was a Moabite woman. Now, you don't, that doesn't mean anything to you today, but uh, the Moabites were the race that resulted. Uh, you remember when Lot and his daughters escaped from, from, uh, from Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and then later on his, his two daughters thought, there's no men left, and so they got their father drunk and slept with him and got pregnant. I'm telling you, the Bible does not hide the flaws of its, of its uh, characters. That's for sure. But, uh, but anyway, the Moabites were the race that resulted from the union of Lot and his oldest daughter. That's the people that came from that, that, that union. Now, the Moabites, according to Deuteronomy 23.3, were forbidden from entering into the assembly of the Lord uh, to the 10th generation. As a, as a part of, that, was a, that was a part of the whole consequences of how they came into being. But the Israelites, however, they were not commanded to annihilate them when they took the land, and they were not forbidden to marry the Moabites. So Ruth was a Moabite woman. And the book of Ruth begins with a famine in the land of Israel. And this famine prompted a man named Elimelech to leave Israel and and to take his family and to live temporarily in the land of Moab. So Elimelech and his wife Naomi... 
They had two sons, and, and each son, after they moved to the, to the nation of Moab, his two sons married Moabite women. Now, Elimelech seems to have died relatively soon after they came to Moab, and then shortly after his death, uh, both sons died without having any children. So now, Naomi is left as a widow with only two daughters-in-law whose name were Ruth and Orpah. Not Oprah, but Orpah. Um, <laughs> And, and, and this, this is a very bad place to be because as a widow without sons, without uh, heirs, male heirs, she's in a real world of hurt. No, there are no government uh, agencies or programs to help her through this. She's in trouble. And so because of that, she decided, she heard that the famine in Israel was over and she decided, I just, I just need to go back to Israel. But she urged her daughters-in-law to remain in Moab. The reason she did was because she knew she could not provide for them. She knew she couldn't provide another, uh, another husband for them. There was no one else for them to marry. And, and it was just a very bleak outlook. And so uh, she, she ta- tried to talk them into staying there in Moab and going back to their family, finding another husband. And she managed to persuade Orpah to stay there. But Ruth, Ruth was determined to remain with Naomi. She had seen something in Re- Naomi. She had se- seen something in the God that she served. And she said, she said, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And, and so she would not leave. She would not be dissuaded. And, and so Ruth and Naomi moved to Israel. And when they arrived at Naomi's hometown of Bethlehem, the people immediately recognized Naomi. And they were excited that she had returned. And, but she set, set them straight right away. And she was quick to tell them all her woes. And she blamed God for all of her troubles. And then she implied that, that, that he seemed to just have it out for her. So Ruth, upon their arrival there, immediately sets out to provide for Naomi's needs because she's there. That's why she's with Naomi, because she says, I'm going I'm to take care of her. And so she begins to glean in the nearby field of a man who, quote, just happened to be a near relative of Elimelech. Now, if you don't know what gleaning means, uh, Israeli, uh, Israeli law required when the harvest uh, came, if they dropped anything in the field, they were to leave it and they were to not harvest around the corner edges because those who were poor, like widows, uh, they needed to be able to come and gather some wheat, some grain for themselves so that they could take care of it. That was God's way of saying, take care of those. This is why, you know, things like taking care of elderly, this is a valid thing. This is exactly what God was telling them to do. So Ruth is doing this and she's doing it in the, in the field of this man who's a near relative of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. When she's out there, Ruth quickly caught the eye of those laboring in the field because she worked so diligently. She hardly ever stopped to rest. But Boaz noticed her as well. And not just because uh, she was a hard worker. He, he also heard a story. He knew her story. He was attracted to her character. But he made sure that Ruth was protected. He said, make sure no harm comes to her. And then he, and he told the, the workers, he said, listen, wherever she's gleaning... Leave a little extra. And Ruth comes home that night with so much wheat that Naomi's like, how in the world could you bring this much home from just gleaning in a field? 
Surely they didn't leave this much behind. And so Ruth told her the whole story and told the story about Boaz and all these things. And Naomi, she's been around the block a a time or two. She understands what's going on. Ruth is blind to the situation, but, but Naomi says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Boaz is showing you a lot of kindness here. I think Boaz has got a crush on you, Ruth. And so she started acting as a matchmaker. Seeking to arrange the marriage of Ruth and Boaz. So she comes to get, she puts together this plan. I'm not going to go into the plan, but it was a way that, that Ruth was going to be able to indicate her need for a husband and then her desire to marry Boaz. Well, the, the long story short says that the plan worked and Boaz indicated that he would be delighted to marry Ruth. But there was a problem. Because you remember how the nearest relative was the one who was supposed to ne- marry the, the woman of the, the widow. Well, Boaz was not Ruth or Elimelech's nearest relative. There was another person who had the legal right. And, and the right would they want to marry her? The reason he would want to marry her is because it, with that legal right, if he marries Ruth, that person gains the inheritance of the land. So there's, there's a financial gain behind it to be had. So... Boaz then goes and meets with the nearest relative in the city gate, and he's, and he's very smart about it. He says, he says hey, um, I, I want you to know you're the nearest relative, and, uh, and so you have the first right to, to uh, purchase Elimelech, Elimelech's land, uh, and so that's your right. Uh, but then he kind of throws on at the end, oh, yeah, and by the way, if you do that, that means you have to marry Ruth, and your child won't be your own heir. And so this other person says, No, I'd like to land, but I don't want to marry Ruth. So Boaz then got permission, and he acquired both the land and Ruth, and they married. And she got pregnant, and Ruth bore to Boaz a child named Obed, who happened to be the grandfather of David. And we know that Jesus is from the line of David. So here we have a foreigner, not someone who is part of the chosen people of God. We have a foreigner. We have this makes this makes all together. We have this conniving woman who slept with her father-in-law. We have a prostitute, and we have a foreigner, somebody who is not part of the chosen people of God. Let's look at the last woman listed in the genealogy, verse six, and it says this: Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was the widow of Uriah. Now, some translations mentions the name Bathsheba, but This here in modern English version, you see here, this is the actual way it's listed. It says the wife of Uriah doesn't even mention her name, leaves her her name out completely, but she's there. So let's look at Bathsheba's story and let's figure out what's going on here. Second Samuel chapter 11, verse one. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. So, okay, let's stop there. It was, it was evening. David was just getting out of, bed, out of bed. Sounds like not such a bad day after all, you know. Uh, the, the, the problem with all of this is, this is, as we're told, was the time when the kings, the time of year when the kings normally went out to war. And so David's soldiers were at war. David had sent them out to war and to fight and to die on his behalf. But he, as their leader, was taking a nap. 
So he's already shirked his responsibilities. And if we had any doubt about why he stayed home, it's all gone now. He wasn't catching up on his paperwork. He wasn't tending to kingdom business. He was goofing off. He was taking a nap. And as he walked along the rooftop of his palace that day, something tragic took place. Let's read about it. Verse 2. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of, of, of excuse me, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, I'm not going to get into this, but Uriah the Hittite was one of David's mighty men. He was one of his greatest warriors, one of his lo- most loyal soldiers. So this is somebody close to him. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. I, that one sentence in there, I'm not going to talk about this, but that is so, so strange to me. Why would they put it? She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. The only reason it would be in there, and the only reason they would know that, is if David asked her. And, and what it, now, why would he ask her that? He's saying, Are you ceremonially clean? I don't want to defile myself in the temple before I commit adultery with you. Strange, strange. Anyway, you know, the truth is, if David had used his head, he would have gotten off that route pronto. He would have gotten off there, but he lingered. And he, and, he, and he let his eyes feast on every inch of Bathsheba's flesh until he could think of nothing but having her for himself. David found out that, uh, who the beautiful bather was, and he sent for her, and, and, and then the thought became deed, which is the process of sin giving, being born in our lives we look at it, we dwell on it, we think about it, and then we do it. Which is why the battle is in our mind way before the doing ever happens. And so, what we need to understand is David's not the only guilty one here. Bathsheba's husband was at war, and, you know, she was married. She could have refused to compromise. I'm not saying that it's her fault, but I'm saying she bears some responsibility. She could have said no. Now, yeah, it, it might have meant death because it was the king. But how much is your integrity worth? How much is your, your faith worth? How much is your, your uh, commitment to your spouse worth? You know, she was probably very lonely. And then you add to that, do you have the glamour of being desired by this attractive, powerful king? And that became more important to her than keeping her vows before God. And You know, they probably cherished those moments together, but in God's sight, it was just hideously ugly. And the the inevitable happened, and we all know what happened. Bathsheba sent word to David and said, I'm pregnant. And that was a real crisis in this culture because now you've got a king... And David was not only the political leader, but he was also really the religious leader. He was the one who wrote many of the Psalms for worship. And, and, and the problem, the crisis was that, that it would have meant death by stoning according to the law of Moses. So now you have the king and this woman who are both deserved to die by stoning for committing the act of adultery. But you know what? David, no crisis in his life had, had ever shaken David before. And he certainly was not going to let this one destroy him. So... His plan was to bring Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, home from the battle for a few days. I mean, surely he will sleep with his wife and then nobody will ever know whose child she was carrying. 
What he didn't count on was that Uriah was far too noble to enjoy his wife while his compatriots were endangering their lives on the battlefield. So he slept in the barracks with the king's servant. And then the next night, David tried to do it again and he slept on the palace steps. He would not compromise. So David had to come up with plan B. And so he calmly wrote Uriah's death warrant, sealed it, and sent it to Joab on the front lines delivered by Uriah's own hand. And it ordered Joab to put Uriah in the fiercest part of the battle and then retreat from him and said, leave him to be killed. And then David added murder to his adultery. After a short period of mourning, Bathsheba entered David's house and became his wife. And the the two lovers finally had each other to enjoy freely, except for one thing that David had forgotten and David had pushed out of his mind. So what it says in 2 Samuel 11, 27, it says, the Lord was displeased with what David had done. Now, I'm not going to get into it today, but we all know there were consequences. And in fact, that baby uh, that was born from that union died as a result of their sin. But for this message this morning, it's interesting, as I said, that in this genealogy that Bathsheba's name is not mentioned in the original. It just simply says whose mother had been Uriah's wife. So here we have, In the lineage of the king of the universe, we find four surprises. A scheming woman who slept with her father-in-law. A prostitute. A foreigner who was not part of the chosen people of God. And an adulterer. Now the question, and we're going to close with this. What does this mean? What does this mean? You know what these stories tell us? You know what this says to me? I love that they're included in the genealogy that Matthew gives us. These stories show us the surprise of God's grace. In human terms, these women should never have been in the family tree of any king, much less the king of kings. God is no respecter of persons. He accepts and forgives us not because of what we are or what we might become or because of of anything that we have done or can do. He accepts us because of His own Son. It doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter where we've been. God can still, He still accepts us and He can still use us. These women came from from very uh, questionable backgrounds and they had done some some things uh, in some cases that were very, very horrible sins and yet God says I don't care what you've done I don't care where you've been I can redeem you and in fact I'm going to use you to be a part of bringing my son the savior of the world into the world I'm going to use you to be a part of creating salvation for all mankind it's the grace of God what matters most is who Jesus is and what he has done not whether are not and excuse me and whether or not we put our trust in him not who we are or what we have done the savior of the world came from people that some of us wouldn't even have anything to do with probably not many of us here you know are looking to hang out with prostitutes and if you, I don't even want to go there <laughs> the savior of the world came from people that we would judge unworthy The Savior of the world came to this earth because of people like his relatives. God wants us to see that through him anything is possible. Listen, I don't care where you have been. I don't care what you have done. 
I want you to understand today that one of the surprises of Christmas is that God's grace is for you. I don't care what you have done in your past. I don't care how bad you think you've been. I don't care how horrible your your family history has been. I don't care about any of those things. The message of the gospel and the message of these four women is that God loves you regardless of where you've done. God loves you regardless of of where you've been and what you've done or anything that you've that you have done in anything in your past that is shady. He does not do that. God, he doesn't care about those things. God wants to see that through him anything is possible. You can be a child of God. You can be a man of God. You can be a woman of God. You can be more than you are. You can be more than you could ever dream of. Through Him, even you and I can be used. Through Him, it doesn't matter how bad our past is. Through Him, our lives can be changed even though we don't deserve one bit of it. Through Him, our lives can have an eternal impact on many, many people. And that is the wonderful surprise of Christmas. That God chooses you. That's the joy of Christmas. That God says, I choose you. That He says that being human is valuable enough that He says, I will become one in order to redeem them. That's the the wonderful surprise of Christmas. You know, what what a strange way to save the world. It's an old Christmas song. It's one of my favorites. What a strange way to save the world. To send a baby. To have a to send a Savior who will live sinless. Then to die a bloody death on a cross for us. What a strange way to save the world. But praise God for this Christmas surprise. Because with this gift of Christmas comes the assurance. This is the, ma- the message. This is the thing I want you to hear. God's grace is for everyone. And I'm not just talking to those of you that are here. But you have friends. You have relatives. You have people that you know that are just so lost. So far out there. I don't want you to forget God's grace is for them too. And you're the beacon of that grace. You may be the only only way that they say, see any of the grace of Jesus in their lives. God's grace is for everyone. Would you bow your head? Father, I do thank you, Lord, that you included these women in the genealogy of Jesus because God, I, I, it shows me that you can use anyone, including me, and that you choose the unlikeliest of people even me, and that you love all of us regardless of what we've done, even me. And Lord, I pray that in this place today, first of all, God, that if there's anyone here that has not experienced your grace, that today they would say, I want want to have the faith like Rahab did, where she said, I believe in God. I don't know a lot about him but I believe that he is the God of all gods and I believe he has the power to save me. So God, I pray that you would give us that sort of the spirit of Rahab in the sense that we would, if we're not there, if we've never done that, we would say, okay, even though I don't have all the knowledge, 
I want to put my faith in him. With heads bowed and eyes closed, there's nobody looking around. Maybe you're sitting at home and you're watching this, sitting in this place and you're hearing what I'm saying. I just have a simple question for you and that is, have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Have you accepted the offer of his grace? He came for you. He loves you. He wants to give your life a greater purpose and meaning than you could ever imagine. If that's you this morning and you're in this place, I want you to slip your hand up. I'm not going to embarrass you, but I want to pray for you. Would you slip your hand up if you'd say, Pastor Dave, pray for me. I, I want to receive God's grace. I want to ask for forgiveness. I want to give my life to Him. I don't know everything I need to know, but... I want to trust Him. Yes, you can put your hands right back down. Maybe you're watching online. Maybe you can just, in your comments, let us know. Just say, pray for me. But I want to pray, and I want everybody to just pray this simple prayer. Just repeat after me. Heavenly Father, I believe that Jesus came to save me. I believe that he died on the cross in my place. I believe he paid the penalty for my sin. And that I, and now I want to surrender to him. I believe that you are the God of all gods. I don't know everything I need to know about you. But I believe in you. And I believe you can save me. So I give my life to you. I surrender to you as my king. From now on, you're in charge. I I surrender everything to you. Come into my life. Save me. Take control. You are my Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. With heads still bowed. I want to know if there's anybody here and say, Pastor Dave, I have somebody in my family. Maybe it's a friend, co-worker, maybe even just an acquaintance. But you say, Pastor Dave, there's somebody that when you said God's grace is for some, but for everybody, not just the people in this room, there's a, there's a name that came to my mind. And, you, and you'd like us, me to agree with you in prayer that God would breakthrough in his grace I don't know what it's going to take but he does but if that's you and you'd like me to agree with you in prayer just slip your hand up right where you are yeah several all over the place there are lots and lots of hands so I'm going to pray and you, you just while I'm praying you agree with me in prayer and you call out their name would you do that you talk to God about them right now Lord you see every hand that was raised and Lord you know those that are on our hearts They're, you know the ones that are on my heart Lord God and And we lift them up to you. And I pray, God, that you would break through with your grace. I don't know what it's going to take. Maybe it'll be a a, a traumatic experience for some people where they finally get to the the end of their rope. Or maybe, God, that you, you can break through in a way that's less traumatic. I don't know, God, but all I know is that they need you. And I pray, Lord, that you would break through with your grace. And I ask, God, that you would anoint us. Let us be used by you, Lord God. And and I pray that you would use us to touch their lives any way we can. And, and Lord, if, if, if it's a situation where they can't listen to us, then God, I pray that you would send somebody into their life. 
that would lead them to you, Lord God. But Lord, I pray that you would pour your grace out on them, draw them to Jesus, bring them to repentance, change their lives, Lord God, because we know your grace is for everyone. And Lord, I pray that as we prepare to leave this building today, as we go out into the community, I'm asking God that you would just let your anointing rest upon your people. Help us to realize that we have a higher calling than just going about our daily lives, that you have placed your hand on us, that you, uh, that you called us for a purpose. And Lord, I pray that as we go into the community that today and all week long, that we would be your hands extended, that we would be the voice box of Jesus, that we would look for people who need grace and then offer grace to them and tell them of your grace. God, I pray that you would let us walk in your favor and that uh, as we do so, God, that we would have opportunities to share our faith with other people. We ask you for all of these things and thank you for them in advance. In the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.